Run, young master, run. We will not run. We'll record with dignity. We'll do the episode that must be done. Stay close to me, Abu. I'll need to depend on you for many things. Abu! Yes, I am Abu. Of course you are. This was the moment when you hit record. We'll start the episode now. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. My name's Abu. And we are at the end of Dune Messiah. <laughs> what? When did this happen? Wow. It's so wow. much. I know it's a short book, but this went by too fast. Take me back. You know what? Let's just let's start over. Let's start at chapter one. Okay, so page one. Yeah. Okay, so we're <laughs> we're with uh, Bronzo. Bronzo. <laughs> uh, shout straw boy Bronzo. No, Leo. We can't go back. We have to end it. All good things come to an end. And today we're here. We're completing our deep dive reading of Dune Messiah. What an incredible journey, and really affirms how much I think we both love this book. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. For sure. There is so much to talk about today. But before that, let's take care of some housekeeping. Right. First and foremost, as all of these book club episodes are, this one is 100% spoiler free. Yes. So that means today we won't be talking about any books beyond Dune and Dune Messiah, considering we have now done deep dives chapter by chapter into both of those books. What a good couple of books. <laughs> Thank you. To our patrons, as always, for your support. Check out patreon.com forward slash gamjabar if you haven't already. We've got some pretty sweet perks, ad-free episodes, bloopers, extra things, some live chatting on our Discord. And as always, today we have to especially thank our two Quisats Hatterack level members, Case Aiken, Nate Hyde. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Holy smokes. Holy smokes. The best. Thank you. It's amazing. Yeah. Another great way to support the show. And your sex life is to check out our merch store at gomjabarshop.com. Get yourself some Dune swag and watch those Tinder matches skyrocket, folks. That's the Gomjabar guarantee. Not a legally binding statement. Nobody hold me to that. Finally, email us, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Right. And patrons, of course, have the exclusive Discord server I mentioned earlier, where you can chat with us, send us memes and pictures of your pets. We love them all. Indeed. So that's housekeeping out of the way. Let's talk about today's episode because things are a little different today. Yes. Normally, we'd have a summary of the chapters and then we would do takeaways and then do spice morsels and wrap up. Right. Today, there are only two chapters. It's a shorter reading. It's the final two chapters of the book, but they are so incredibly dense that somehow our script today is no shorter than any previous script we've ever written. <laughs> yeah. And how we're going to handle it today is we're just going to dive right into these chapters. No summary, no takeaways. We're just going to dive deep into chapter 24 and chapter 25, taking it 
basically line by line, paragraph by paragraph, beat by beat, and breaking it down as we go. At the end, we will have a kind of collection of spice morsels, some (laughs) surprisingly deep little details that have been introduced in these chapters. For sure. Okay, so that's the game plan for today. And before we dive in to these final two chapters of Dune Messiah, we're going to take a short break. But don't go anywhere, folks. It's time to finish this book right after this break. It would be shocking for you to leave now. Don't. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get into chapter 24, the penultimate chapter of this book. This chapter begins with just the worst children's limerick I've ever read. This is awful. If you read this to me as a kid, I'd have nightmares. And the chapter hasn't even really started yet. This is this preamble to it. But let's revisit it. Quote, There was a man so wise, he jumped into a sandy place and burnt out both his eyes. And when he knew his eyes were gone, he offered no complaint. He summoned up a vision and made himself a saint. Oh, my God. (laughs) End quote. That's... Holy shit. The worst. Don't read that to your kids. (laughs) Burned out both his eyes does not belong in children's limericks. But here we are, Dune Messiah, penultimate chapter. Right. Read your kids Edgar Allan Poe before you read them this, quite frankly. (laughs) Just to whet their appetite for burned eye Messiah Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, jokes aside, this sets the tone for what we're about to walk into, right? Totally, yeah. This is dark and moody and awful in so many ways, (laughs) Yeah, which is the adjectives I would perhaps use to describe a lot of what goes down in this chapter. So if anything, this, this really sets the tone. The chapter proper begins with that tone having been set with Paul Muad'Dib Atreides standing outside Siege Tabur. And this is the night of Chani giving birth. Hey, Mazel Tov, except it's not a good mood. He knows that birth for her means death, so he's here alone wrestling with his prescience. Right, and just like that limerick, his mood is not great. Right. He's reflecting bitterly on all of the changes that his rule and his influence has brought to Arrakis. He's thinking things like, quote, water flowing in the desert, end quote. And this is with disgust that he's looking out upon the changes that he has wrought. Right. And so at this very moment, as he's looking out over the desert, one of Paul's aides approaches with some paperwork. He's an emperor. There's still ruling to be done. Treaties to sign. Yeah, exactly. And the aide asks, for his signature. <laughs> this is actually kind of funny. Most of this chapter is dark, but it has these moments of levity just sprinkled throughout. And this is one of them. Yeah. He kind of lashes out at this aide and he's like, I don't need you to read me the damn treaty. I can read it. And then <laughs> reaches over and perfectly signs on the dotted line. 
which when you think about it is another act of the prophet, right? This is another thing that will go down in the history of Paul Muad'Dib Atreides. Right. It just continues to add to his legend. Even the very simple act of signing a contract is legendary when Muad'Dib does it. And he reflects on that and he's frustrated. He knows the awe that that signature inspired in the the assistant, the person. Yeah. And he's like, that's so dumb. It's so dumb that everyone's so impressed that I can see with these burnt out eye sockets. (laughs) I also, just to take a quick tiny step back, I get the impression he's out here, not at Chani's side because that's how the vision goes. And that's got to be torture, right? Like that's got to be the worst feeling in the world because you would want to be with the person and savor your last moments with them. But if his vision is him out on the plains, well, that's what the vision is. So here he is. Yeah. This point will come up later too, but I'm really glad you brought that up now, Leo. We have to remember all through these final chapters, Paul is doing what he is supposed to. Right. What he has to, to stay locked into this vision that we talked about last time. So great point. Yeah. And that is, I think, certainly part of what sets his mood. But more broadly, we also get through his thoughts about Arrakis, a sense of his broader frustration. The desert, right, with this raw, brutal elements, only needs water and love to shift to this kind of greener place that it is becoming. And water, we know, is life on Arrakis. It's the most valuable substance for people on the planet, the Fremen. And we get this quote. Life changed those irascible wastes into shapes of grace and movement, he thought. That was the message of the desert, end quote. And the thought stuns him. This idea of worshiping life and clinging to life and celebrating life Mm -hmm. is so center in his mind. And that is a very non-Fremen thought, but such is the nature of his love for Chani. Yeah, it's incredibly sad. His thoughts here are interrupted by hate who has arrived because he just discovered that uh he's got a bit of a compulsion problem <laughs> uh-huh. b implanted him with a thing and he needs to tell the young master he needs to tell paul naturally paul already knows it he's like yeah of course you do i knew yeah. that yeah uh-huh <laughs> quick shout out here also to this little exchange which is kind of funny quote Tell me what you see around us, Paul said. My lord, the desert, how is it tonight? Don't you see it? I have no eyes, Duncan, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, is Paul joking here? Like, is he like Josh and his old friend? <laughs> this really caught me off guard. And I found myself laughing at what is probably one of the saddest chapters of any book I've ever read. I think on a first read, I also laughed at this. This felt like a jokey thing between two old friends. On reconsideration, I pulled a classic Gamjabar and I was like, you know what? I'm going to read too much into this. Let's fucking go. So follow me down this rabbit hole, if you will, Leo. Yeah, please. Let's go. I actually think that this little exchange, I have no eyes, Duncan, is perhaps more tragic than funny. Based purely on what Paul says immediately after that line, he says, quote, I've only my vision and wish I didn't have it. I'm dying of prescience. Did you know that, Duncan? End quote. Yeah. And to me, this then reads as him saying, Duncan, 
what's the desert really out there like? What is reality like in this moment? Because all I can see through my visions is what it's supposed to be like. Right. It also calls to mind for me, because I, I think that's a great point, like beautifully said. It calls to mind for me the moment that he shuts down his oracular vision next to Chani in one of the last chapters. And it's just listening to her breath and noting that like that feeling of, t- of hearing her breath is something that he has outside of his oracular power. And he knows that his power at this point is a curse as much as it is, as much as it is a boon. This is the cage that he is aware of, as he said in one of the previous chapters. Yeah, for sure. Now, hate is, in this moment, wrestling with Paul's despondency. And a couple of interesting quotes are said that we wanted to quickly reference. First, hate addresses Paul as young master. And Paul kind of calls him out as this. Did the Tleilaxu teach you that? Were you programmed to say that? Or did that come from inside you? And it's clear to us at this point that Duncan Idaho is buried deeply somewhere inside hate. This was not a Tleilaxu teaching. He wasn't programmed to call Paul young master. He does so here because of some sort of instinct to comfort Paul because Paul is so despondent right now. Yeah. Secondly, Paul has a follow-up question. He asks, quote, do you serve two masters? End quote. And you actually pointed this out. I hadn't considered this at all. This is perhaps a direct reference to Duncan's original mission with the Fremen way back in the first book under Leto Atreides, where he served two masters, where he served the Duke and also Stilgar and the Fremen. So there was the table spitting scene that they agreed that Duncan would go with Stilgar and word for word, they talk about serving two masters. You'll serve two masters. Yeah. Your body is the Atreides and your water is that of the Fremen. Yeah. Two very intentional callbacks to the first book. Young master, two masters. Right. Now, Paul insists that hate will awaken as Duncan. He doesn't confirm whether or not he's seen it in a vision, and he is momentarily distracted by a calling from the desert. Quote, had he only imagined the sound, it had been his tribal name called from the desert far away and low. Usul. Usul. <laughs> End quote. That sounds dumb read aloud, but <laughs> you, you get the idea. Right. It'll be much more tragic in the movie We Trust Denny to handle this. Oh. A hundred percent. That audio. It's not going to be like a Casper the Ghost moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would really ruin the mood. (laughs) Paul is then kind of attempting to remember the good times with Johnny, but he keeps getting caught up on kind of recent memories. He begins to cry. He's giving water to the dead before, (laughs) before she's dead, as he asked his sister so many chapters ago, what is before? And even now as he cries, we'll know later that he doesn't cry at the actual moment of her death. So all of this yeah. is just tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. Now, it's at this time that they get the news from a Fidekin named Tandis. Chani is dead. The moment happened during childbirth. She passed away. Now, Paul says here, quote, I heard her call. And I, I don't know. It, okay. Was yeah. that... The Usul from the desert, like, was that her voice as she's sort of, like, spiritually joining the desert and the, the, I don't know, like, 
I genuinely tried to sort of wrap around a few different possible meanings of this, and I was unable to come up with anything that really satisfied me. What did you think, Abu? So my theory on this is that the Usul Usul is perhaps a ghost whisper in his visions from not Casper the Ghost, like a ghost whisper <laughs> from one of his... <laughs> He's like, get out of here, Casper. <laughs> you Tleilaxu <Right>. abomination. <laughs> <laughs> For real, though. <laughs> I think what he's hearing is perhaps little whispers of alternate timelines where he's in the room as she's dying and she's whispering Usul Usul. Obviously, that's not the vision he's currently on. Remember, he's on like track A right? and he's ignoring all the other tracks. But perhaps from track B or C, where he was in the room and she whispered Usul to him as she died, some of that is leaking through in this moment where she perishes. That's my like sort of overly complex read on it, but I think it could also just be a dramatic way of telling us that Chani has passed. <laughs> yeah. If anybody out there in listener land has a take on this, I'd love to hear it. Seriously. Yeah. Send us your theories, please. Yeah, for sure. And regardless of the meaning, this is heartbreaking. Just the reality of this character that we've all come to love over the last two books is dead and her death in that moment of what I'm sure was traumatic and scary for her happened off page. Yeah, definitely. It's also at this very moment that he says the fateful words that hate was like, no, don't. <laughs> he says she is gone. And as we know, that is the trigger word for B Jazz's compulsion planted within hate. And this leads to just an incredible passage and an incredible couple of paragraphs here. Yeah, I loved the poetry in all of this. I thought it was just so visceral, but also it's abstract in that way. It reminds me of Paul's awakening as the Quisatz Hatterach and the like description of that place within where there's flickering lights and rings and wind from an unknown place. So from a blazing corona, there are these sort of imagined puppet strings and hate is compelled to draw his knife raising it to strike and paul's response which is this beautiful weaving of paul atreides duke late to atreides and the old duke shakes hate to his core we will not run we'll move with dignity we'll do what must be done and that beautiful <laughs> little rule of threes statement triggers what what essentially sounds like this existential struggle within him and at risk of this kind of slowly becoming an audiobook of <laughs> dune messiah <laughs> this paragraph is incredible quote old memories flooded his mind he marked them adjusted them to new understandings made a beginning at the integration of a new awareness a new persona achieved a temporary form of internal tyranny the masculating synthesis remained charged with potential disorder, but events pressed him to the temporary adjustment. The young master needed him. End quote. Oof. Ah, it's amazing. And we'll talk about that more in the morsels as well. That's right. And I think we have to pause here in our chapter because this deserves some attention. Oh, totally. We have to acknowledge this frankly, universe-shattering moment that just happened, a Tleilaxu Gola reawakened its genetic memories. That has never happened before. Right. 
And the question that immediately comes to my mind here, Leo, is, wait a second, did the Tleilaxu totally know this was going to happen? Right. Right. Yeah. And the answer to that is a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yes and no. If you recall back in the chapter where B-Jazz implanted the compulsion within hate, B-Jazz actually mentioned the possibility of a reawakening. If you don't mind, Leo, do you want to do a little bit of play acting and uh, do this next quote? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. I'll be hate, you be B-Jazz. Ready? <laughs> My favorite. Yeah. <laughs> You're trying to awaken violence in me. Awaken, yes. Violence, no. You are a disciple of awareness by training. So you have said. I have an awareness to awaken in you, Duncan Idaho. The past cannot be awakened. It has never been done. True, but our masters defy the idea that something cannot be done. Always, they seek the proper tool, the right application of effort, the services of the proper... You hide your real purpose. You throw up a screen of words and they mean nothing. <laughs> End quote. End scene. Thank you so much, Leo. Wonderful. I can't wait for our Oscars. <laughs> so this exchange between Bejaz and Hate makes clear to me that the Tleilaxu were actually very much prepared for the possibility of Duncan Idaho awakening. And in fact, they were ready with a plan A and a plan B. If Hate had actually murdered Paul, as Hate was conditioned to, then they'd have simply negotiated with Alia and offered up a Gola puppet of Paul. Right. Option B was if Duncan Idaho had awakened, which we know he does, then they would tempt Paul with resurrecting his beloved Chani memories and all. So this would not be an imitation of Chani. They could now offer the real deal, memories and everything intact. And you can imagine how tempting that is in the moment his loved one dies. Yeah, And this idea is reinforced later in the chapter when Sightail is like amped that Duncan has awakened. Quote, so it's truly Duncan Idaho of the Atreides. We found the lever. Agola can regain his past. End quote. <laughs> He's pouring shots. He's like, Woo! let's go. <laughs> Eureka. Yeah. Oh, he's stoked. <laughs> so taking what Sightail says in all his excitement here. The next natural question then is, what exactly is the lever? What is he talking about? What pressure is it that broke Hate's psyche and triggered this rush of his old Duncan Idaho genetic memories? Yeah. So recall from all the way back in chapter two at the start of this book. <laughs> years ago. When Sightail, like. <laughs> years ago, feels yeah. like. When Sightail told his fellow conspirators that the Tleilaxu had created Kwisatz Hatteraks of their own. But they all failed. This is what he said back then. Quote, a creature who has spent his life creating one particular representation of his selfdom will die rather than become the antithesis of that representation. End quote. Yeah. Oh, so good. So now let's fast forward to the current moment. Duncan explains this trigger in more detail to Paul later in this very chapter. He says, quote, The compulsion to kill you, Idaho said, rage thick in his voice. Mentat computation. They found that I thought of you as the son I never had. Rather than slay you, the true Duncan Idaho would take over the Gola body. End quote. Yeah. 
And that right there is our trigger. To force the Gola to act in a way that is antithesis to their very being is what causes enough of a psychological break for the genetic memories to come rushing back. It's crazy to think about that pressure enough so that your conscious mind would rather end itself than do the thing. It could drive you to end your life. There's so many ways that that could go terribly wrong. But remember, the Tleilaxu have done this before. In the past, people went crazy because they didn't have perspective. They didn't have the ability to distance themselves from their immediate experience. Well, let's solve that. Train them as a Zen Sunni, train them as a Mintat. And those trainings, the ability to say, I may be suffering this psychotic break, but I can take a step back from it and I can have perspective and I can use this distance to heal and to find stability and internal tyranny, as they put it here. It's incredible. They equipped him with the mental tools necessary to overcome that psychological break rather than kind of succumbing to it like that failed Kwisatz Haderach. It's fascinating. I mean, really, throughout this section, the Tleilaxu are playing 4D chess. Like, they are just, yeah. every element is considered. It's fantastic. It's so cool to see. Right. It's just too bad for them that Paul and his <laughs> newborn babies are 5D chess masters, Whoa, motherfucker! 5D! <laughs> so, so, 7D chess. They have <laughs> so many Ds. <laughs> so, that little digression about Golas having been made, let's get back to the chapter because there's still more to talk about. So much more. Now, Paul doesn't take long to kind of revel in this literal accomplishment of the universe. And he summons Duncan basically to follow him. Stay close, right? Stay close. I'm going to need you for a lot. <laughs> Duncan's like, yeah, oh, yes, I am Duncan. What? That's crazy. And Paul gives us an idea of his own state of mind, right? Quote, of course you are. This was the moment when you came back, end quote. And I love that he's speaking in past tense. Like, yep. Paul has been through this a million times. So for him, he's already moved on. He's like, okay, we've done it. You know, it's like when you've seen the TV series 30 times and you get to like the tragic death of the character and you're like, okay, next episode, right? And your friend who's watching it for the first time is like, I'm going to need a minute. Paul's like, we don't have a minute. We have to hit play on this next episode. It gets crazier in season two. That's right. So Paul is headed into the siege. He's on the way to Chani and his children. When Tandis delivers the news that we as the reader already knew, but Paul didn't, Chani has had twins. Yeah. And to say Paul is shocked is just a violent understatement. Shocked is not the right word for what hits him in this moment. He like legit physically stumbles. He's so shocked to hear this. He like sort of trips and braces himself against the wall. And despite his shock and awe at realizing he has not one but two children, he also recognizes that it's weird that the vision is still going as planned. Yeah. Quote, the sound of noisy confusion filled the cavern ahead of them. It grew louder precisely as he remembered it growing louder. Yes, this was the pattern, the inexorable pattern, even with two children, end quote. Oh. So track A is still track A. There's just 
another train that he'd never realized was on here. Everything else is exactly the same, though. Yeah, it's really like hard to imagine the shock in addition to the grief, you know, because every fiber of his being wants to give into his grief, but he knows he can't. Here's the quote. Chani is dead. I should abandon myself to grief, but that was not the way the vision went. End quote. Oh, my God. It's just, it's unfathomable, really. Yeah. And even if Chani's death is necessary, as he tells Duncan at the end of this chapter, this is the lesser evil that avoids even darker futures, right? Quote, Chani, 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 he thought. There was no other way. Chani, beloved, believe me that this death was quicker for you and kinder. They'd have held our children hostage, displayed you in a cage in slave pits, reviled you with the blame for my death. This way we destroy them and save our children. End quote. Wow. That's maybe the clearest his visions have ever been. Yeah. All throughout our discussions in this book, all throughout this book, it's been very vague, right? Paul just saying, I'm seeing something terrible. I'm seeing terrible futures. But we didn't know what he was seeing. And this is the quote where we perhaps get a glimpse that there's a future where Chani is caged up. Yeah. Where Chani is in slave pits. Like, yeah, now we're starting to piece together this puzzle of why Paul would make the decisions he has in this book. He's trying to avoid those terrible futures. Yeah, it's unbelievable and maybe a little understandable why he wouldn't defy the vision for even something as small as going to her side. Yeah, it's that butterfly effect that we've talked about before. Right. So as he finally enters this room, it's clear to us, the reader, that Paul has quote unquote closed his eyes like he's sort of shut off the vision and is walking into this room truly blind he does a little bit of stumbling around and there are a couple of possibilities here there's a few ways to read why he would do this one is that maybe something in this room is blocking his visions two is that he's a person walking in on the body of a loved one and he just cannot bear to look a third option is that now that he's realized that there is another child that he never saw in his visions, he's perhaps shutting it off because he can't fully rely on it anymore. There's already a literal blind spot in his visions. So there's also this question of how reliable is this oracular vision to him anymore? It is shocking to read these sentences because Paul is literally being guided by first Duncan, and then he moves to where Hurrah's voice was. You know, Hurrah says, look at your beautiful babies. Look at them, omniscient person who can see everything. <laughs> and he kind of blindly goes over and bumps into something. Like, this is such a different person than the guy who piloted his own ornithopter down here. Yeah. And in this moment, Paul does kind of reopen his oracular vision to see where Chani's body is. And sure enough, that is the same. That's consistent. He turns away in pain and, and turns off his vision again. He, he goes blind again. He blinds himself again. And one of his babies starts crying, which is a sweet moment. I also get the sense here that grief is shutting his vision down. And we have this quote, she was gone, never to return. The air 
the universe all vacant, everywhere vacant. He felt himself rejecting the future, any future, end quote. And in this moment, it's so easy to forget that Paul Atreides is a human, is a human who lost the love of their life just now. Yeah, that's an interesting read on it. That's funny because I didn't get that from this scene. My interpretation was that hearing the child is what turned his vision off because that's how it's written as well. He doesn't turn his vision off and then the baby cries out. The baby starts crying and then this veil falls over his eyes again. Right. And given what we know about Leto, his son, being preborn, I am getting the sense that here the book is hinting this giant blind spot, his son that he never saw in his visions, is fucking with Paul's powers. Did not even show up in any of his millions of visions. And now that they're in the same room together, living, breathing beings with similar powers, there's almost this like Dune Tarot-esque like static interference. Right. But I think, again, like so much of Dune, it's probably multi-layered and it's probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I was just going to say, yeah, because it's a great point. And ultimately, I think you're right. Like that's the, that's the scene. And it's only as I'm reading this for the second time that I'm trying to kind of unwrap some of those maybe deeper things, but also that might just be interpretation and that might just be what I take away from it. And that could be different because again, this is a work of art, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Alia is insistent. She's like, you got to talk to Lykna, hear what she has to say. This is super important. And Paul's like, fine, fucking where is she? Let me talk to her. <laughs> yeah. And it's at this moment that Sightail sort of shuffles around Paul, moves around him, and approaches his children. And Paul finds himself frustrated by his blindness. It's a very tense and vulnerable moment. You get the feeling that some of this is perhaps matching up with his visions, but some of it is totally new, and he's kind of walking that edge figuring out what the right thing to do here is. It really adds this amazing layer of intensity to the scene. Yeah, no kidding. With knife in hand, Saitail offers his bargain. Paul, we will give you a Gola of Chani, reawakened with the techniques we've now learned through Duncan Idaho, with all of her memories intact. Deal or no deal. <laughs> Howie Mandel, knife to your fucking throat. <laughs> That's that was the original pitch of that show. Uh, they <laughs> brought it back a bit. They made it a little nicer for public television. Right. <laughs> I was struck here. So Paul asks the question, what pressures would you use to restore Chani's memory? Would you condition her to to kill one of her own children? Sucktail's like, whatever. Sure. Whatever it takes. And in asking that question personally, and again, this is just maybe my reading too much into things. But I see this as Paul doing his best, exerting the efforts he can to equip himself against the temptation of having Chani back. I think this is brilliant. And that's just, that's my takeaway. But I, you know, thought about that. No, that's great. I love that. Good job, Paul. He's reading the fine print. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's at this moment that Paul, almost in disgust, but again, to your point about temptation, I think to avoid further temptation, tells Alia to bargain with Saitail. He needs to walk away from this. Right. And this is where, this is just fucking crazy. Yeah. This uh -huh. iconic batshit crazy moment happens where Paul realizes that he's getting these weird flashes and glimpses 
of the room they're all standing in from the perspective of his son's eyes. He feels blinking. He's like, did I just blink? I haven't had eyes in fucking months. (laughs) Like, what (laughs) is happening? Yeah. Yeah. And no summary that we could attempt could possibly do this scene justice. Yeah. So (laughs) here's just the full quote. Quote, watching himself through the eyes in the crash, Paul slipped his Chris knife from its belt sheath. The movement produced a strange sensation of duality. He measured the distance, the angle. There'd be no second chance. He prepared his body then in the Benny Gesserit way. Armed himself like a cocked spring for a single concentrated movement. A prajna thing requiring all his muscles balanced in one exquisite unity. The Chris knife leaped from his hand. The milky blur of it flashed into Sidetail's right eye, jerked the face dancer's head back. Sidetail threw both hands up and staggered backward against the wall. His knife clattered off the ceiling to hit the floor. Sidetail rebounded from the wall. He fell face forward, dead, before he touched the floor. End quote. My God! (laughs) I read that the first time I read this book, I read that like seven or eight times just living in the mythological quality of it. It's nuts. (laughs) It's amazing. Talk about father-son bonding. This was (laughs) for real. Yeah. I, I for one, learned how to ride a bike with my dad. (laughs) There was no assassin murder knife throwing in my childhood. Yeah. I don't know about you, Leo, but this is one hell of a way to bond with your newborn son. (laughs) And in in fact, actually, speaking of bonding, there continues to be a bit of a connection here between the two because Paul is trying to fathom what the fuck just happened. Yeah. He's like, why the fuck can I see out of my kid's eyes? And he starts to hear the voice of his son. Yeah. And connecting a couple of dots together, he comes to the wild conclusion that his children are pre-born. It's clear that both of his children are pre-born. Now, this realization is marked by a moment that I want to talk about for a second. When his son kind of hits him with this torrent of memories and lives, so this kind of soul-sharing, we, we have this description of Paul's reaction. Quote, Paul sagged against the wall in a spasm of dizziness. He felt that he'd been upended and drained, end quote. And gosh, I just cannot stop thinking about that moment where Jessica had that moment with Reverend Mother Romalo back in the Water of Life ceremony where they kind of shared their memories and everything. But it was a delicate thing that came out of Benny Gesserit practice. Paul did the same thing to her when he awoke from his three-week coma But he didn't have that same nuance, and so she felt drained, and she felt overwhelmed and exhausted from this explosion of shared experience. And now Paul, with his own son, is like, yeah, maybe, I don't know, they're probably going to be special. They're my kids. But wait, we got to pause here, because there's a very obvious question. How the hell are Paul's kids pre-born? Yeah. Here's the quote from the book of Paul trying to work through this logic. Quote, He remembered the awakening of Alia in the Lady Jessica's womb, but there had been no water of life, no overdose of melange this time. 
or had there? Had Chani's hunger been for that? Or was this somehow the genetic product of his line foreseen by the Reverend Mother Guy's Helen Moheim? End quote. Mm. So those are maybe not the most concrete of answers. Again, Paul doesn't know what's going on here either. He's trying to figure it out just as much as we are. But those are our two possibilities that exist. His kids are preborn because of this immense spice intake that Chani was hungering for. The other possibility is that perhaps this is just a result of his Kwisatz Haderach genetic line. Right. That him and his children and his children's children and anyone in his genetic line is just predisposed to be preborn or to have these abilities that he does. Right. No, he has a tremendously practical thing to get done. The kids need names. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I can't really call you baby one and baby two, so let's give you names. Starts off strong, Leto. Coming to his daughter's name, he goes with Ganima. And we will also talk about Ganima's name in the morsels uh, because there are some really beautiful parallels here with Hurrah and also with kind of some of Paul's duality. But we'll talk about it at the end. And of course, then Hurrah leaves because she has to perform the water reclamation with Chani to reclaim her body's moisture. Duncan then escorts Paul to his room. And the reader at this point might incorrectly believe they can finally breathe. No, don't. But no. <laughs> don't breathe. <laughs> don't. Keep holding your breath, folks. This <laughs> chapter is not slowing down yet. Right. Before Paul himself can relax and finally take a breath, Bejaz fucking appears at his door and he offers the Tleilaxu bargain to Paul once more. Right. The water rite is incomplete. We can still go get Chani's body, get her in the cryo chamber and bring her back for you. Do you want this, Paul Atreides? And here, perhaps even more than earlier, Paul is so tempted, so, so tempted on the brink of accepting this bargain, this devil's deal. Instead, he turns to his friend, his confidant, Duncan. Kill this dwarf before I succumb. Right. And that's exactly what Duncan does. Now, the chapter ends on a just defeated Paul, just allowing himself finally, after all of this, after this 400-page chapter, to <laughs> breathe. <laughs> and he tells Duncan in this moment, quote, There was no choice. You understand that, Duncan? There are some things no one can bear. I meddled in all the possible futures I could create until, finally, they created me. There are problems in this universe for which there are no answers, end quote. Wow. Jeez, we might uninvite you from the TED Talk, Paul. That was pretty dark. We don't know <laughs> if that's the best message for our graduation ceremony, but we really appreciate your application. Right. <laughs> Yikes. Stanford is going to rescind its invitation <laughs> for you to come speak to our new graduates. You can't solve everything. Everything's dark. <laughs> Some things no one can bear, but you have to bear them. And I weep. All right, let's do the tassel thing. Is it left to right or right to left? I Nothing don't know. matters. Tear your tassels off. Eat them. <laughs> it's time you understand how the world works. Oh, my God. It is truly the lowest Paul has been. I know we keep yeah. saying that like every episode of this <laughs> book club. It keeps getting lower. 
he keeps getting lower, but this is it. Yeah, it's true. He has completed his task. The universe is on track A, as he intended, and he's done. He can finally rest. He can finally grieve for all of the pain that he suffered. Right. Quote, Paul felt his link with the vision shatter. His mind cowered, overwhelmed by infinite possibilities. His lost vision became like the wind, blowing where it willed. End quote. <sighs> wow. All right. Now that Paul has finally allowed himself to breathe, let's all allow ourselves to take a bit of a breather. With that chapter completed, we're going to take a short break. But don't go anywhere because there's still one more chapter to talk about. And then, of course, later in the episode are yummy, yummy spice morsels. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Hope you had a good break. Hope you enjoyed breathing. Chapter 25. My God. <laughs> Final chapter of the book. We're there. And luckily, that last chapter was like 700, 800 pages long. This one, shorter. It's a shorter chapter, but it is still very, very dense. Let's, let's get into it. So this chapter opens with Duncan looking out over the desert outside of Siege to Burr, and we learn what has transpired since we left off from the previous chapter. Tandis had brought Paul to this very spot where Duncan is standing now, and Paul had walked out into the desert. Yeah. Tandis went back to the siege and told everyone Paul's final words. Quote, he told me the future no longer needed his physical presence. When he left me, he called back. Now I am free, were his words. End quote. And despite Duncan's pleas, the Fremen have refused to send out any search parties or ornithopters to try and find Paul wandering alone in the desert. This is the Fremen way. This is what happens to blind Fremen. They are an offering to Shai Halud, an offering to the desert. And Paul, as a Fremen, must commit to it, emperor or not. I get the impression, hear me out. I want to hear what you think about this. Do you think Paul actually called back to Tandis? Like, here's a final thing to tell everyone. I'm in the mood to, like, leave a mark. Or do you think this is like Tandis being like, I could have sworn he said that. I'm going to be part of this story. And I don't know. I kind of feel like it's out of character for Paul to do that. But am I being too skeptical? Skeptical? Do you, do you think Paul said that? Or do you think Tandis is being kind of pushing himself into the history books? Oh, no, totally. This is religious embellishment of their Messiah. Yes. I think Paul's actual final words were, the future no longer needs my physical presence. Bye, bitch. <laughs> Fuck off, Tandis. <laughs> and then he pushed his face. <laughs> and the whole, like, the Messiah walking into the desert, slowly looking over his shoulder. Now I am free. Yeah, come on. That reeks yeah. of just religious overtones of myth making. <laughs> no, I, I think you're spot on. I think 
this is a little bit of embellishment of their Messiah's final moments, right? Any other blind Fremen would just walk out into the desert. But when your Messiah does it, it's got to be pivotal. Right. Duncan is in his own thoughts, thinking back about the marketplaces on Caladan, hanging out with young Paul. And it's clear that Duncan Idaho is feeling guilt and responsibility for how events have turned out. Quote, Gurney Halleck. Gurney would blame him for this tragedy. End quote. Uh. Also, reminder, Gurney Halleck's alive. <laughs> if you forgot in the last <laughs> eight episodes of this book club, Gurney and Jessica are still on Caladan. So, yeah, bro. He can still text you and be like, I blame you for this tragedy. You <laughs> fucked up. Yo, how's Paul? <laughs> Duncan's like, I'm going to leave him on red. That's a whole conversation. And this tragedy, of course, is Paul being dead. And we don't know how it's going to happen, but the desert we know is not a kind place. Duncan wonders, how will Paul die out in the desert? And he doesn't know, but the Fremen are already kind of carrying that Tandis style, like, no, 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 he's he's good. They're already carrying that legend beyond him. That's right. They're already starting to feed into the myth of Paul Atreides, claiming that, quote, he had entered the raw world where all possible futures existed, that he would be present henceforth in the Alam Mithal, wandering there endlessly even after his flesh had ceased to be, end quote. Yeah, that sounds, sounds religious. That sounds religious. And that sounds like something a messiah does, not what an actual living, breathing human being does. We can already, mere days, hours, we don't actually know how long it's been, after Paul has left, his myth is already starting to explode. Duncan is a bit more practical. This made me chuckle with how humorously dark it is. Right. He thinks to himself, quote, he'll die, and I'm powerless to prevent it, end quote. Man, so funny, because I read that line, and I was struck with the fact that we just witnessed the compulsion to save Paul's life and to protect Paul. And the ability to protect Paul is what resurrected the Duncan Idaho memories. And now here Duncan Idaho is with all of his allegiance and all of his loyalty, powerless to save Paul's life as he basically kills himself. I was like, this is the saddest sentence in the book. Yeah. <laughs> but such is the nature of these sentences in these paragraphs. Again, I'm sure as we're talking about this, we had two different experiences with this sentence and a few others, but I'm sure many of our listeners also had their own experiences. And that speaks to, I think, the humanity built into so many of these moments because such is dark humor and such as, you know, it is funny. No, he'll die. Like, that's just, y'all are getting all fancy. No, he's, he's dead. Right. It's the juxtaposition of, he has entered the raw world. He'll wander the <laughs> Allah mythal, baby. And Duncan is just like, bruh, he's going to die out there. You mean his it's grave? What's going to happen? Yeah. Weird way to say that. A lot of syllables. One syllable. Grave. He's dead. Yeah. Now, as he's thinking all of these thoughts, looking out over the desert on this gloomy night, his mind begins to wander. He begins to become lost in this sea of thoughts. And he abruptly pulls himself out of it, kind of recognizing that instead of acknowledging his grief at the loss of his friend, the son he never had, right. 
he is being lost in these old memories of Kaladin and thinking about what the Fremen are saying and wondering how Paul will die. He's trying to think about anything except his own sadness about it. Right, yeah. It's a brutally human moment. He stands up and looks out over the desert one last time. And in a weird way, he's actually feeling a little refreshed. Quote, he will become one with the desert, Idaho thought. The desert will fulfill him. It was a Zensuni thought washing through his mind like clear water. Paul would go on marching out there, he knew. In Atreides, would not give himself up completely to destiny, not even in the full awareness of the inevitable. End quote. Man, so interesting to hear Duncan's thoughts on the Atreides and that he has his own form of mythology surrounding this family, this house. He's going to keep walking out there, you know? Yeah. Such a good point that this is his own version of the myth of Paul. Yeah. He looks at Paul less as Muad'Dib the Messiah and more as Paul the Atreides. And him thinking, ah, he'll continue to go on. He'll never falter in the face of destiny. Sounds a lot to me like he's going to enter the raw world and wander the (laughs) all-mythal, you know? like (laughs) It's funny that both Fremen and Duncan are still so wrapped up in this mythology around Paul. Yeah. No one can just look at him as the living, breathing, flesh and blood human he is. Yeah, that's true. At this moment, Stilgar approaches, and Duncan and Stilgar, these two loyal servants of Paul Moati Betraides, talk about their lost friend and leader. We learn that Stilgar has actually just returned from a trip with Alia to Siege Macab, where they had, in Stilgar's words, whipped those troublesome knaves into line. <laughs> Everyone now follows Alia's orders. Yeah. And thus we learn that Alia has assumed the throne as regent until Muad'Dib's children can come of age and take their rightful throne. Right. And her first order, (laughs) you'll never guess, the execution (laughs) of every single conspirator. I'm talking Edric. I'm talking Korba. Let's add Moheim to that list. Moheim. All of them dead. Kabash. That's... Wild. He also relates to Duncan at this point that um, he should come back. Alia needs her. And Stilgar is basically trying to say like, hey, yo, dude, your girl needs you in this moment. Need to come back to her. And then he departs. Right. Duncan's mentat awareness at this point puts together the pieces of this vast puzzle. And he realizes how Paul, at the end of it all, after all of these tragic choices, has seemingly won the day. Quote, Paul had set in motion a whirling vortex, and nothing could stand in its path. The Benny Tlalax and the Guild had overplayed their hands and had lost, were discredited. The Kizarate was shaken by the treason of Korba and others high within it. And Paul's final voluntary act, his ultimate acceptance of their customs, had ensured the loyalty of the Fremen to him and his house. He was one of them forever now. End quote. There were multiple forces against him, and he outmaneuvered all of them by the end of this book. At great cost to himself, but ultimately protecting his family. Right. Amazing stuff. Alia approaches. Just appears at his side. (laughs) 
She is just a roller coaster. Quote, he was a fool, wasn't he, Duncan? Idaho's throat tightened with suppressed grief. Such a fool, Alia gasped, her control breaking. He'll live forever while we must die, end quote. Which, man, if that doesn't call back Chani saying, you have eternity, all I have is now. Yeah. And thus the book and this scene wraps up. Alia gives into her grief. She begins to sob as Duncan comforts her. He is grieving as well. And these two finally openly profess their love for each other. And we end the scene and this novel on these two lovers holding each other, grieving for their emperor, their brother, their friend. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> sad note to end a sad book on. Did you just end that paragraph <laughs> like a Trump tweet? Sad. Sad. <laughs> sad. You know it. We know it. Everyone knows it. Everyone's talking about it. It's very Dune sad. Messiah, very sad, sad book. book. <laughs> the failing Dune Messiah. <laughs> terrible reviews. Terrible reviews. Didn't see it myself. Didn't see it myself. <laughs> I don't know how to read, actually. But <laughs> What are words? What are words even? <laughs> <laughs> weird there is a lot more to say but we are going to get into our spice morsels just got word from the head chef they are fresh hot out of the oven Mm-mm-mm. but we gotta take a break gotta wash our hands so stick around we'll be right back with our spice morsels and our wrap up welcome back folks wipe away those tears for Paula Trades. And wet your appetites. It's time for Spice Morsels, baby. Yeah. Mm. And Leo, actually, I'm going to let you take this first Spice Morsel. Because we talked about the final two chapters of this book. There is an epilogue, a very short epilogue. And that's our first Spice Morsel today. Now, in the epilogue of Dune Messiah, we get what's simply labeled the Gola's Hymn. That... In all honesty, I missed it on my first read-through. Like, I 100% did not remember this, even remotely. Same. But here it is, for anybody who, like us, missed it the first time. Quote, No bitter stench of funeral still from Wadib. No knell nor solemn rite to free the mind from avaricious shadows. He is the fool saint, the golden stranger living forever on the edge of reason. Let your guard fall and he is there. His crimson peace and sovereign pallor strike into our universe on prophetic webs to the verge of a quiet glance. There, out of a bristling star jungles, mysterious, lethal, an oracle without eyes, cat's paw of prophecy whose voice never dies. Shai Hulud, he awaits thee upon a strand where couples walk and fix eye to eye the delicious ennui of love. He strides through the long cavern of time, scattering the fool self of his dream. End quote. Now, that's just cool. It's beautiful. It's good poetry. It's lovely. Honestly, I just wanted to pick apart a couple of these internal beats or these internal phrases and, and re- uh, references. One of the most compelling two-word combinations in this is pretty easily missed because it utilizes this phrase that I honestly had to Google to double check what it meant. Duncan describes Paul as cat's paw of prophecy. A cat's paw literally means 
a person used by another as a tool. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Paul as a tool of prophecy. What a sympathetic and accurate take on Paul's curse. Now, sidestepping from that insane gut punch that is Cat's Paw of Prophecy, let's talk about also from our Dune Tarot episode. The Dune Tarot has a lot of this imagery, and because of the Dune Tarot episode, I couldn't help but notice some of the little pieces of the hymn itself. So, for instance, multiple times in this hymn, Paul is referenced as a fool, which, of course, while reminiscent of Alia and Duncan talking in that last chapter, it's also one of the major arcana. The fool is either the first or the last of the major arcana. It's numbered either 0 or 22, marking him as literally the alpha or the omega of the major arcana. Another note about this, the fool is noted as distinct among all of the major arcana. So while these arcana maybe detail these elements of the universe, Paul is unique. So referencing him as the fool here is, I think, quite poignant. Although I very well could be digging too deep into a couple of choice words. It's fine. This is Gamjabar. This is what we do. <laughs> Gamjabar, baby. This is Gamjabar. Keep going Keep further going. down the rabbit hole. <laughs> you don't have to say less. Okay. <laughs> Couples. <laughs> A.K.A. the major arcana Wawi, right, which roughly approximated lovers, the lovers card in the major arcana. Couples in the sand, eye to eye, there that is. Shai Halud, A.K.A. major arcana 15, great worm. <laughs> Whoa, so cool. Universe, even though it was lowercase, universe is a major arcana card in the Dune Tarot. I'm just saying it's cool. So anyway. My insane rambling conspiracy theory, I'll take off my tin tinfoil hat for a second yeah. and get off my little soapbox. I will turn the question actually now, unusual in a spice morsel, but I am curious. This hymn is poetry, and I want to hear what your thoughts are, listeners out in listener land. What do you think? Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com or on the Discord. Let me know. What do you think about this hymn? Any takeaways beyond that? Because... I think it's open to a lot of interpretation, and I'd love to hear what you got. Absolutely. Oof. <laughs> okay. That Dune Tarot flex out of the way. Let's talk about <laughs> our next Spice Morsel. Yeah. We've already talked a lot about the Gola hate in Duncan, Idaho, but here's a tiny bit more detail in this Spice Morsel. It's easy to think that after the transformation, after Duncan, Idaho's memories come rushing back, the character is the exact same one that we left off with in the first book. That, however, is not true. Hate recalls dying as Duncan Idaho, recalls coming back in the Tleilaxu tank, and of course has his own experiences as hate in all of this time in Dune Messiah that he has spent with the Atreides. That doesn't change. The Dune Encyclopedia gives us a bit more perspective on this. What actually happens when Agola's old memories come rushing back? Quote, the person who emerged from this trauma was a new being. As quickly as Hate Duncan responded to Paul's entreaty in Atreides' battle language to slay Bejaz, and as much as his swiftness echoed the unquestioning loyalty of Duncan Idaho, the new Duncan was unanticipated by his Tleilaxu creators and the Atreides. He was still loyal and retained many of Idaho's characteristics, 
such as his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, comes out of nowhere, huh? <laughs> he was still loyal. <laughs> Cannot believe the encyclopedia explicitly calls this out. Such as his ability to fight, his ability to fuck, you know. <laughs> he was still loyal and retained many of Idaho's characteristics, such as his ability to charm women. <laughs> hey oh. Yet, hey oh. Yet the man who accompanied the truly blind Paul Atreides on the beginning of his walk into the desert was a mutated and hybrid consciousness. End quote. <laughs> Charmer of women. So charming women aside, that part of Duncan 100% fully back. Yeah. This new person is not the Duncan Idaho we knew from the first book and does not solely hate from the second book. He is an amalgamation of both. A mutated hybrid consciousness, as the encyclopedia puts it. Yeah. Well, our next spice morsel, heavily, <laughs> heavily debated online. Many people, and ourselves included, occasionally forget that Paul and Chani had a first son in Dune who was killed off-page during that Harkonnen attack, and that son's name was Leto Atreides. Hmm. <laughs> so, historically, there are many cultures in the world where if an infant died, the next one of the same gender would simply be given the same name. This was a thing, especially when, like, infant mortality was a huge factor that this is a feudalistic future that has in many ways returned to older patterns of family and legacy. It's interesting that this is part of the story, but at least, although it is very strange, at least it makes sense historically from a certain perspective in a certain culture. I've literally seen people online go, Frank Herbert forgot that he gave Paul a first son. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that isn't the case. This is just a different cultural thing than many of us are used to. And uh, yeah, Frank knew what he was doing. He did a lot of research, guys. He did his homework. Yeah. And, you know, that that's us also doing our research into it. But there's also a world where Frank could simply have written these books years and years apart and decided, fuck it, I'm just going to rename this character Leto. Like, Frank is not infallible. He was a normal dude. No, that's totally true. And I and I don't mean to imply that Frank is infallible. I just know that a lot of the people that I've spoken with are like the idea of renaming a child after the same name seems like a clear mistake cuz who would do that? That's crazy. But it's a deep-rooted part of some cultures that we simply have moved away from in a lot of societies. I don't know. I don't know what was in Frank's mind when he made that choice. But I, I guess that's what I'm saying is like we don't know. Like right. was he doing research on common practices when infant mortality was high of renaming children twice or did he was this simply a stumble like I mean, in, in the writing process they, but, the, but considering they mentioned the lost son multiple times in dune messiah like it was clearly on his mind no you're absolutely correct i'm just saying like we don't want this morsel to sound like this is the definitive answer oh, and sure. other opinions are wrong we don't know that's true that's the fair. only person that knows has been dead for a long time. We can't go back and ask Frank how he came up with Leto's name. That's true. We don't know, and that's a that's a great point. I don't want to get too caught up in my own headcanon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, we can't talk about one twin without talking about the other. Let's talk about Ganema and her name for a little bit here as our final spice morsel for today. 
in the terminology of Dune, we get this definition of the word Ganema. Quote, something acquired in battle or single combat. Commonly, a memento of combat kept only to stir the memory. End quote. In the first book, we came across this word in a scene where Alia actually uses it as a bit of a jab towards Hurrah. Quote, Jessica sensed amusement from Alia. My brother's Ganema is annoyed with me, Alia said in her half-lisp. Jessica marked the term Alia used to refer to Hurrah, Ganema. In the subtleties of the Fremen tongue, the word meant something acquired in battle. End quote. So the fact that Paul, with Alia and Hurrah both in the room, gives his daughter Ganema is an absolute flex. Yeah. The other side of naming his children Leto and Ganema is how it reflects the duality within Paul. This is a major theme we've talked about both in the Dune Book Club and many times here in the Dune Messiah Book Club. Paul is both an Atreides and a Fremen. He is both Paul Atreides and Muad'Dib. Right. And he has two children. He gives one twin the name of his father, the Atreidean name, the off-worlder name. And he gives the other child a Fremen name, Ganema, a deeply Fremen word rooted in Fremen tradition. The duality of Paul, folks, extends even to his twin children. So good. Amazing. We should write like a graduate thesis on the duality of Paul. <laughs> Is that how people earn their degrees, writing about fictional things they're obsessed with? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Universities out there. Uh, who will give us degrees if we write that thesis? <laughs> yeah. Specifically Stanford. <laughs> All universities, but specifically Stanford. We want degrees. <laughs> I got that fucking art degree. <laughs> I'm trying to upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of dissertations, this episode has been one, but we've done it, Leo. We did it. Dune Messiah complete. But wait, there's more. What can our listeners expect up next, Leo? Tell them. Oh, man. Okay. So like before, we're going to do a bonus Dune Messiah episode with mailbag. Any kind of final questions, final ponderings from you, the listeners, and then... The second half of that episode will be a full spoiler discussion because there is some really interesting things to talk about looking at the other books that kind of come after Messiah. That's right. So now's the time. Hit send on that email <laughs> you've typed up or that Discord message. Doesn't just... even have to be to us. Just hit send. <laughs> Whatever you, you don't finish it. Just hit send. Now, go. <laughs> Tell her you love her, goddammit! <laughs> Unfinished. Sincerely, comma, don't even write, send. Go. <laughs> send us your questions and thoughts on Dune Messiah, folks. We will be answering as many of them as we can in the next and final Dune Messiah book club episode. And then, of course, for the folks who have read the entire Dune saga, we will be diving deep into a spoiler takeaways discussion about Dune Messiah and its place in the larger saga. It's going to be a fun time. It absolutely will. So join us then. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. I've decided just to be safe. I'm going to call all helicopters ornithopters from now on. So I don't make that mistake anymore. (laughs) And I'm only going to call wives concubines just to be safe. That should never backfire. (laughs) Congratulations. Oh, this is your concubine. Beautiful concubine. (laughs) He's your, he's your Duke, your lover, solid.